So today, Psalm 131. Uh, is our passage. We're in our final uh, sermon in this uh, mini four-week series uh, where we've been reflecting on the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, If this is your first Sunday, uh, the Psalms of Ascent is this collection of songs, uh, namely Psalms 120 through 134. Uh, These songs that were sung by by Hebrew pilgrims uh, as they made their way up to Jerusalem for the three different worship festivals throughout the year. Uh, And some pilgrims would be traveling for days to get to Jerusalem, and, and these These 15 songs were especially esteemed valuable for God's people on that journey, valuable above other psalms even, uh, to refresh and to recapture their hearts, to specifically renew their hearts and minds with who God is and what he's done, to to reorient themselves back to to who they were in him and, and his promises for them. And as I've said, these songs truly tell the story of their ever-deepening journey of faith. They, they tell the story of life and, and, and the struggle of life at times and, and the journey of discipleship and, 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 and a, as a follower of Christ, what that might look like. Uh, so in the same way, today as Christ followers, as pilgrims on the journey, these songs tell the story of our journey of faith in Christ. Uh, they, they give us these profound and practical pictures of what the journey looks like. And we see through these psalms uh, the, the difficulties in the way of faith, uh, that there are ups and downs uh, of our walk in pursuit of God. We, we, we see that uh, there's challenges uh, that, that we are met with. Uh, and yet, throughout the psalms of ascent, throughout these 15 songs for the journey, What we're reassured of over and over throughout these psalms is is that those on this faith journey, despite our wayward pursuit of God, God's pursuit of us never wavers. It's unshakable. We're reminded over and over that God will never fail us, that, that he is our redeemer and our faithful refuge and strength. And with our eyes set on him, pursuing him, worshiping him, we find hope. We, we find life. We find joy and peace and forgiveness. And today we come to the end of our little pilgrimage our final uh, song of uh, ascent. So please follow along with me as I read Psalm 131 and may God richly bless the reading of his holy and inspired word. Starting in verse one. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you here this morning to hear your word. So Lord, I I pray that if there are any words that I say of myself, that they just be forgotten, but that your word, that your gospel, that your grace would be projected boldly through me, your servant. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would soften our hearts to receive your grace. Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonders of your gospel and how you and you alone are worthy of our praise. 
We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Several years ago, uh, the sociology department at Duke University uh, has reported I've done this study on peace of mind and contentment. Uh, From their research, they gave eight factors that contribute significantly to the happiness and emotional stability that leads to contentment. Uh, and here's what the study found, these eight factors. The first factor uh, that, that, that uh, they found is that the absence of suspicion and resentment is helpful to find contentment. Right? They found that, that nursing a grudge uh, is a major factor in discontentment. Uh, the second factor they found is that uh, they said don't live in the past. If you want to be content, don't live in the past. The, the research found that an unwholesome preoccupation with old mistakes and failures actually leads to depression. So they said, don't live in the past. Uh, Thirdly, uh, one of the factors is they suggested not wasting time and energy fighting conditions that you can't change. They they suggested that it would would just free yourself up and that the finding contentment and happiness and emotional stability, you can't waste your energy on those things. Fourthly, they said, force yourself to stay involved with the living world. And their advice was resist the temptation to withdraw and become reclusive during periods of emotional stress. So so far, I mean, it makes sense, right? You guys doing all right with them? All right, we're tracking through here. Um, Number five, the fifth factor is refuse to indulge in self-pity when life hands you a raw deal. They said it's helpful to accept the fact that nobody gets through life without some sorrow and misfortune. So if you can just get there, you'd be able to be more content. Sixthly, they said cultivate the virtues of love, humor, compassion, and loyalty. Seventh, they said don't expect too much of yourself. The logic was that that when there's too wide a gap between self-expectation and your ability to meet the goals that you've set, feelings of inadequacy are inevitable and discontentment is sure to rise. Again, makes sense. How, how are you guys doing so far with them? Yeah, we're doing all right. Here's the problem. The reality is, right, these, these platitudes, while there, there certainly is some truth in them, right, they give us absolutely no resource, no functional power to actually fight against the discontentment. What's, what's interesting is they actually got pretty close with the eighth factor. Here's what they said. The eighth factor is they said you have to find something bigger than yourself to believe in. Today, Psalm 131, although one of the shortest of all the Psalms in the Bible, only three verses, is one of the most beautiful and profoundly practical pictures uh, that you'll find uh, about contentment. It paints this beautiful picture for us of what contentment looks like, but then actually walks us through how we might actually attain contentment. I I love what Charles Spurgeon, great 19th century Baptist preacher, uh, says about Psalms 131. He says, it's one of the shortest Psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Contentment is one of those things that's so easily talked about, yet it's, it's extremely hard to actually live content, right? It's extremely hard to, to actually attain it. And if I'm being honest with myself, and as a pastor, you hope that I am, um, if I'm being honest, I'd have to say 
that I've spent the vast majority of my life fighting against discontentment for one reason or another, right? Whether it was my height growing up, I mean, I always wanted to be taller. I always said that if I got to six foot, I'd be in the NBA. I didn't get there, and so I'm here. Whether it was my, I'm not even getting my curly hair. Growing, I was terribly, I just wanted straight hair like everyone else. For some reason I had this curly like fro and gel and anyways. Fight against that, or my job, right? Being single, being married, just joking, just joking on that. My wife's not at this service. Uh, my bank account, like as I look back, right, on the years of my life, a common theme throughout my entire story is discontentment. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that I've spent my entire life in this perpetual state of discontentment. By God's grace, that hasn't been the case. But, but my goodness, <laughs> I know the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians that, that he's learned the secret of contentment. Reality is I, I haven't quite gotten there yet. Right? I, I mean, I'm still learning at best. I mean, I'd like to think that I've grown a bit, right? But nonetheless, the reality is I have to regularly battle against discontentment. And I don't think I'm alone on that, right? Because we all do at some level. Being discontented is is a, a universal problem. There's not a person in this room that does not struggle in some way or, or in some area with being content, Every human heart struggles against it. Now, Psalm 131 paints this astonishing picture, an extraordinary image of contentment, and we see it really in verse 2. It says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And King David, who wrote the psalm, as he's describing his contented soul as, this, as, a, as a weaned child, teaches us some invaluable truths about contentment. And here's what we're going to look at today. Here's what we learned from Psalm 131. Uh, the first thing that we'll see is, is why we struggle with being discontent, why we struggle with discontentment. The second thing is, is what actually produces contentment. And then thirdly, we'll see how we actually attain contentment. So why we struggle with discontentment, what produces contentment, and how we can actually attain contentment. All right, so let's dive in. Why we struggle with discontentment. He starts out, he puts it in the negative. Verse one, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I like the NIV translation of it. It translates it like this. My heart is not proud. Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. So do you see what he's saying here? King David, in describing his contentment with the metaphor that we see in verse two, begins in verse one by saying his pride had to be subdued in order to actually gain contentment. He's saying, I had to drive out my pride, and that is why I can quiet my soul. Okay, so David wants us to understand that, that pride is the reason we struggle against discontentment. 
Pride is the very root of all of our discontentment. And here's what I mean, and perhaps it'll help to to give a definition of pride. I love how Louis Smedes, a Christian author, defines pride. Here's what he writes. He said, pride has to do with how we feel about God. Pride is an arrogant refusal to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for oneself. In the vivid image or language of the Bible, pride is puffing yourself up in God's face. Pride is turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, reliant on one's own resources. So pride is puffing yourself up in the face of God. Pride is is putting yourself in the place of God. Right, the, the proud heart wants to take God's rightful place in your life. And the Bible says that every single human heart wants to be a supreme being. Here's what I mean. We, we all want to be our own gods. Right? Because we, we want to call the shots. We want to run our own lives. We want to decide what's right and wrong ourselves. We want to earn our own self-worth. We want to find meaning in life on our own. On our own, We don't want to center our lives around anyone but ourselves. We want to be the very center of the universe. And that's, that's why St. Augustine calls pride the, the commencement, the root of all sin. Right, Because it's the same lie that got Adam thrown out of the garden and Satan thrown out of heaven. And, and this, I want to be God, has been the battle cry of humanity ever since. We've been running in our rebellion from God ever since. Now get this, running from God, saying, I want to do it on my own, and running from him, as he gives us the air to breathe, but we're running. And it's that pride that produces all our discontentment. Right? Because it's our pride that says to God, I don't trust that you know what's best for me. Uh, I know what's best in my life. Let me control things. I'll come to you if I think I need you. Listen, we struggle with contentment, not because we're short or have curly hair or are single or are married or your bank account or your job or your kids have gone off the deep end or family tragedy, whatever it is, we struggle with contentment because we fail to trust in God as God. We put ourselves in the place of God, right? Right? Deep down, we struggle to trust and believe that God is who he says he is, that he is sovereignly and providentially in control of all things, that that all things work out for his glory and our good. We struggle badly with that. And because we do, we are constantly battling against discontentment. And David is saying here in verse one that I have fought against that. And my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. And then he goes on. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. You, you see what he's, what he's saying? What, he, what, what he's saying is, I will not pretend to think in my finite capacities 
that I can know all the ways of an infinite God. Because let's, let's face it, there are things that happen in our lives. There are things that happen in the lives of those around us, and there's absolutely no comprehending it. Right? They make no sense. My wife, Christy, uh, an amazing woman, she grew up right here at, at Coral Ridge, uh, actually baptized here, uh, graduated from WA. Rod Hayes, the elder who actually made the announcement, is her father. And so when he said we keep it, you know, in the family, this is like, it's true. Like, we keep it tight. Um, she grew up right here at Coral Ridge, baptized here, graduated from WA. Christy, when she was 12 years old, lost her mom to multiple sclerosis. Christy's mom, like, and I never met her, never had the privilege uh, of meeting her, but an incredibly strong woman, served this church, loved Jesus, wanted nothing more than her children to grow up to know and, and trust him. And, and Christy spent her elementary years literally caring for her dying mother. Listen, there's, there's nothing that you can say that really makes sense of that, right? That nothing you can say that, that can really comprehend that. But see, one of the lessons that the Bible is so eager to have us learn is that it's not up to us to comprehend it, right? I mean, look at, look at the book of Job. That, that in that story, there's this man, he loses his family, his home, his health, his relationships, wave upon wave of trial and distress come upon him and they make no sense, right? And yet Job stands up and says, naked I came into the world and naked I will go out. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, one of the primary things the Bible would have us learn is that we trust God and we love God for God himself and in him alone, not just for the things that he gives us. Listen, things happen that we cannot comprehend, but we're not called upon to comprehend them. We're called upon to trust that God comprehends them. Listen, you, you may not be able to understand what's happening in your life right now. Right? We may not be able to make sense of what's happening in our lives. We may not be able to make sense of it, but we're not necessarily called to make sense of it. We're called to know that God makes sense of it. And that, that he is sovereignly, providentially in control of all things. And in his infinite wisdom and power, he's working all things together for his glory and the good of those that love him. See, Christian, realize that, that the reason God's actions are so often opaque, are so often unclear, it's certainly not because I am wise and he's foolish, right? Because that would be unfounded pride to ever convince me of that. The reason why God's actions sometimes seem opaque and unclear is, is because he's too great and he's too marvelous for me. He's infinite, and, and David's saying here, listen, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I don't comprehend it, but I trust and know that God does, and he's making sense of it. Amen? Amen? 
So pride is why we struggle with discontentment. It, it flows naturally that humility is what produces our contentment. Specifically, uh, humility or, or humble submission of the Lord. Take a look at, at verse two. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Okay, so, so David here describes contentment with this extraordinary metaphor of a weaned child. It's somewhat ambiguous, but, but here's what it means, and I think most of us can pick up on the image. Uh, the, the process of weaning a child it is to withdraw a child's dependency on, on some object or habit, right? Or, or more specifically, to accustom the child to food other than the mother's milk or a bottle or a pacifier, right? Unweaned children uh, are crying in their mother's arms until they get something from the mother, namely her milk or a bottle or passing, right? And only then are they quiet. Now, I'm not too far removed from that infancy stage of child rearing. Uh, maybe some of you can, can recall, but it's amazing to watch a baby go into absolute desperation mode, right? I mean, uh, having a, a complete breakdown as if they're on the verge of dying at any moment if they do not immediately get a pacifier. It's madness. Now, for Christy and I, it was uh, with our, our uh, middle child, Reese. She's now seven years old, but my goodness, weaning her off of that pacifier when she was two was absolutely no joke. One of the hardest uh, times, just weaning. The other kid's not as big of a deal, but for her, it was a big deal, and especially in the car. I don't know what it is about kids and driving, because I know two weeks ago, my illustration was driving with kids again, but man, it is a struggle. And when we were weaning Reese off of this pacifier, I mean, she would just break down in absolute hysterics, crying for her passy. I vividly remember this one scene where Reese is going absolutely nuts, crying hysterically for what seemed like hours. My then four-year-old Noel starts crying and actually desperately yelling at Reese to stop crying. And, and, so, and I'm driving, and I'm just like shaking the steering wheel. Christy's just calm as an angel as she always is. That's a joke. She was going, it was, it was madness. But it was, a, it, was a pain, it was a painful process, weaning our daughter off the pacifier. And see, that's exactly what weaning, it's a, it's a process. And although it was a process, it was exactly what Reese needed. See, a, a weaned child has made it through that transition. It's out on the other side. Uh, the weaned child isn't going through the same panic and, and desperation. The weaned child is satisfied with its mother, right? Content, not trying to get something from her, just delighting, resting, trusting in the very presence. I love how Tim Keller, in commenting about this verse, uh, describes the metaphor. He says this, the metaphor for spiritual maturity here is a weaned child. On the one hand, we are a child at the mother's breast, an image of complete helplessness. We are completely dependent on God. Without him, we can do nothing. On the other hand, we are a weaned child, an image of contentment. Unweaned children cry in mother's arms until they get something from mother, her milk. Only then are they quiet. But a weaned child is satisfied just with mother herself, with her very presence. 
Contentment is humbly submitting to God as God. That we are but a child at the mother's breast, helpless, completely dependent on him. Recognizing that without him, we can do nothing. Right? Contentment is not desperately flailing ourselves if he's not indulging our every whim, but completely, unalterably, confidently trusting in him with our lives, satisfied with his very presence, not anxiously trying to get things from him that we think we need, but resting quietly our soul as a weaned child, saying, you are God and I am not. That's the very nature of contentment. Uh, Listen to how uh, Sinclair Ferguson, a great pastor theologian, how he defines contentment. He says this, contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord at his disposal. See, a contented soul complete, confident, satisfied soul is one who has no higher ambition than to be at the Lord's disposal. It's the one who says, the aim of my life is for God to do with me whatever he wills because he's my father and I trust him. See, that's what it's meant, what it means to be content. To have no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord at his disposal. Like a weaned child that's gone through the transition. See, pride is why we struggle with discontentment. Humble submission to the Lord is what will produce contentment. But how do we actually get there? Right? How do we how do we subdue our pride? How do, we, how do we humbly turn to God? We see it in verse three. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope in the Lord. In other words, find your peace, your satisfaction, your contentment in God, not in circumstances. Not in all those things that we have such a tendency to place our hope and our contentment. Our job, our husband, our wife, our bank account, our kids. Because listen, those things, as good as they are, weren't designed or created to be the source of our ultimate satisfaction. And listen, when we place that kind of burden on, on something finite, something temporal, it will only ever disappoint. Listen, I want to be, for my wife, the perfect husband. I want to be her everything, her complete, like, knight in shining armor. Reality is, is I'm going to disappoint. I haven't yet, but I will. (laughs) I'm I'm not going to live. My shoulders were not created to bear that. And I will crumble, and so will her contentment. See, what we place our hope in, it changes everything. And it's only when the object of our ultimate hope is the Lord 
that we will ever be content. Hope that our, our satisfaction and our, our completeness and our, our peace and our security is in him. And listen, when, when King David is calling us to hope in the Lord, he, he's not referring to some general hope. Like, like you hope you'll get that raise at work. Or, or you hope that you'll arrive safely after your holiday travels. Or you hope that I end this sermon at some point. Right? It's not talking about that kind of hope. That's not what King David is referring to. And see, that's not what the Bible is referring to as hope. See, ordinarily, when we, when we say hope, I hope for this or I hope for that, we're expressing some level of uncertainty. Right? I hope I get that raise, but man, I don't know. See, but biblical hope is not just an uncertain desire for something good in the future and then you just cross your fingers and see what happens. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. That we expect good in the future and be confident it will happen. That's biblical hope. You say, hey, wait, Dave. What does that mean? Like, I want to be there. <laughs> what does that mean? And we'll, we'll say that it means three things, and we'll end with these three things. I'll end the sermon, is what I'm saying. What is biblical hope? It means these three things. First, is that our bad things turn out for good. Romans 8.28 is, is, is a promise to us. God's promise is that even in the midst of those hard things, that, that, that we will be conformed further into the image of Jesus to delight in and enjoy God more. So even the bad things turn out for good. That's biblical hope. Secondly, is that our good can never be taken away from us. What is our good? Well, our, our ultimate good is our redemption, right? That you've been reconciled to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it can never be taken away from you. Like, think about it. That you stood justly condemned before Almighty God, right? And there's nothing you could do, no amount of religious or pious effort to gain God's approval and acceptance, that as, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That because Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live and died the death that, that we deserve to die and, and on the cross taking the penalty of my sin, taking on the wrath of God that I deserve and dying on that cross but being raised from the dead on the third day, defeating sin and death and offering forgiveness of sins for all who turn from themselves and trust and believe in him as Lord. And see, and because we have become the righteousness of God, not only do our sins go on his account, not only does God treat him as our sins deserve, but his perfect righteousness goes on to our account. That, that we are looked at by God the Father Almighty as if we have perfer- perfectly fulfilled the law and satisfied all the demands of God. All the blessings that Jesus earned have been secured and lavishly poured out on us as his children. 
They can never be taken away. So even, even bad things turn out for good. And our, our good can never be taken away from us. That's biblical hope. Thirdly, our best things are yet to come. Our best things are yet to come. And listen, when faced with tragedy, this one's a hard one. This one's not easy. Right, because... I think we really believe, at least we, we function in such a way that this life is the best that there will be. Right? And, and we, we fail to understand the beauty and joy and love in the new heavens and new earth and life eternal with Jesus. And our perfectly resurrected bodies without sin, without death, without hurt and pain and illness and seizures will be in perfect relationship with our God and Savior, receiving his love and loving him perfectly. Our complete and ultimate satisfaction found in him. Listen, our best is yet to come. That's biblical hope. So my question is, who or what are you putting your hope in? Put your hope in the Lord, in the infinite living God. See, a weaned child is not just someone who knows all this in principle, but, but someone who has massaged these gospel truths into the fiber of your being and, and then continually and daily massages it deeper. See, this, this quiets the soul into extraordinary contentment, subduing our pride and humbly submitting, depending, trusting. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.